0: Exponential Trust Times is the unique AI channel of trust that offers an innovative formula of mentoring at scale for youth people from all around the world. I'm Dr. Lobna Kari, Executive AI Strategy Growth Advisor and Digital Transformer for Fortune 500 and Cat 40 for more than two decades and the President of AI Exponential Thinker. Exponential Businesses is the unique fair opportunity for young generation to learn from high technology achievers at a global scale. Our aim is educating about trust technology and AI opportunity. In this theory, we invite AI researchers and practitioners with exponential AI journey dedicated to build technology for millions of customers and users. And particularly in this episode, from Seattle, we fly to California meeting Dr. Mohak Chah, vice president and AI Machine and machine learning at LG Electronics. Please help me welcome in this episode, Mohak. Hi, Mohak.
1: Hi, Omna. Uh, thanks for having me, glad to hear. How are you? I'm doing very well, how about you?
0: Very nice. So I'm really pleased to have you in this um, uh, with us in AI exponential thinking. Thank you for joining this discussion uh, uh, in this episode uh, about AI for exponential business. So we we will address many topics in this discussion, but before all of this, And we know after two decades experience uh, either in AI, digital transformation, technology uh, in in, in Silicon Valley, my question is, uh, what's the funniest thing that happened in your professional career? I know that maybe there's a lot, right? But at least (laughs) one to share with our young audience today.
1: Uh, Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah, there are a lot. (laughs) Uh, Let me think. So here's the thing. One of the interesting things, in fact, it's it's both funny and in in some ways it's it's instructional, is I learned the importance and sort of prevalence of meme culture, I guess, in the organizations. And uh, uh, what it then does is when you propose ideas and after some time, those ideas are kind of coming back to you. So essentially I would give an idea to someone, that idea floats around in the organization and then it comes back to you as sometimes your idea is some and more often than not somebody else's idea, right? And uh, during the process you learn, you know, like you, when we were kids, you used to play this phone game, right? You would have like this, uh, like information distortion that happens every time. And you start learning at this meme culture. I had like a bunch of experience where these ideas would come back to me. And I'm like, wow, this is quite interesting. The idea looks familiar, but that's not exactly what I, what I said, right? So something happened somewhere. Uh, <laughs> You start enjoying like the meme culture, right? So the first reaction when you are kind of just joining the workforce is, yeah, how come somebody else is taking credit for my idea? But I think the more fun part of it is it kind of validates your idea. It basically tells you that, uh, you know, there is merit to it. Somebody really feels that this idea is worth kind of passing out. Uh, And as it kind of circulates around, it also makes acceptance. So it's, it's sort of a fun that way. But then on the fun side, you can always play around with it. You can experience, uh, experiment with it, right? So one of those meme cultures, for example, I just floated around some idea uh, about like some random term that I would just coin, you know, things like robotic Watson. It may or may not mean anything, but hey, I mean, let's just see, you know, if it really comes back to me. And sure enough, you just give it enough time and it comes back to you. So (laughs) it's it's, it's an amazing experience to kind of see how, uh, how ideas kind of float around. Uh, but importantly, it kind of also tells us how technology and science progresses, it's, it's basically very cumulative in nature, right? And everybody kind of, it's not just kind of taking the idea and running with it, but adding what they know about it. Sometimes, you know, uh, when the idea comes back to me, I'm kind of, I, I'm both excited and surprised that there are certain new things that you learn about it, right? There are certain new dimensions that you never thought about it. So it's an interesting experience altogether. All
0: uh, it's, it's resonate to, uh, with me too much what you are saying. <laughs> Especially, you know, uh, from one domain, from one industry to another, and from one company to another, you, you see too much about this what you talk about the culture, you name it culture, and how people perceive things as well. Yeah. And and there's always, like, like, at least for the beginning of, of any uh, relationship with the company and, and the people in the company, there's sometimes you need this time in order to to sit, you know, to to, to, to define and clarify the context and, and try to understand both the sides. I mean, the side of technology, but also the side of expertise of those people as well. That's and true. sometimes you are right. Sometimes you, you, you discuss, but there's like a gap. There's a gap, but after sometimes we we understand and maybe there's a lot of sense that we can explo- you know exploit it in some way for the benefit of the company. But it's it's definitely something that we needed uh, because it's it it the experience of both of us by finally at the end, right?
1: It, it absolutely does, right? I mean, everybody is coming from sort of a different background, different experience. So as a technologist, for example, I, I push an idea. I have relatively limited understanding or even like uh, like limited view of the constraints of domains and businesses and how they are operating, right? So in my own world, I am like giving this amazing idea and I feel like, you know, uh, this is gonna change the world. It comes back to you and you start realizing, hey, you know, these are X, Y, and Z reasons why I can't even put it in practice. I mean, let alone it changing the world. So let me just dial back, understand the context and it start you start kind of appreciating that context more and more.
0: Right. Nice. So uh, Mohawk, you are an executive technologist. You are also a researcher, associate professor. Uh, you write also a, a, a book of, of Cambridge, uh, from Cambridge Press. Uh, with more than two decades AI experience in large corporates such as Bosch, but also LG Electronics and others, we are really curious to know more about your personal journey uh, to achieve this incredible career. But especially, was it a dream at the beginning?
1: Uh, I would like to say yes, Lobna, but that won't be true. So (laughs) 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 just like all of us, right? I mean, uh, our journeys are, I believe, at least in my opinion, our journeys are sort of a combination of our interests, our passions, and more importantly, circumstances. I think, you know, whether we call it circumstances, luck, uh, you know, what happens at any given point in time, whether at personal level or macro level. It all plays in a, a role in it, right? I mean, and it's kind of like the latter part, the, the circumstantial part, is relatively underrated. In some cases, you uh, you kind of are pushed into something because, hey, this is what's happening. So I'll give you an example, right? When when I was growing up in India, uh, I'm originally from India, right? So we uh, when we uh, I was growing up there, if you are coming from sort of the background that I was, there were sort of two fundamental Directions in which you can go for a viable career. So if you are kind of you know pursuing arts or pursuing uh, sort of some of like those uh, soft areas, yeah. there were relatively limited opportunities, right? I mean to essentially move up the chain. So the default was okay, you know, go do math or go do biology, right? I mean, become a doctor or an engineer. That's essentially how very broadly the world essentially used to view it. So we were like, fine. I mean, and, and thankfully, you know, math was something that I really enjoyed. Uh, medical was another thing that I enjoyed and I got to, uh, I got kind of fortunate to work in a field that would bring both of those sides together a little bit later in the time. But we started with math and I was like, yeah, fine. And, you know, uh, this is going on. Computer science was sort of a new phenomena. This was like growing at that time.
2: Yeah. And
1: it was both exciting and uh, sort of both uh, uh, kind of amusing to see how quickly it was changing the world around us. So I entered that. And as part of my kind of you know, final year, I got around to this whole notion of neural networks back then, actually. So it was less machine learning, and there, there was like more neural networks because this was sort of mid to late 90s. Yeah. And uh, late 90s, it was uh, neural networks were a thing then. right? And the mid to late 90s, that was sort of uh, one of like, the, the uh, high periods of neural networks. And we started learning about that. And that got me interested in this broader area of machine learning. And the original interest was purely kind of intellectual that I, I just want to learn this because hey, how can machine learn? How, how do they really kind of do things that we do? And it sounded very exciting, right? Yeah. So I started doing that Talked to sort of uh, you know, a bunch of professors and that's just, uh, while I was back in India, I started kind of communicating with professors, looking at their research works and ended up kind of uh, meeting who would be my supervisor after that, like in uh, back in Canada. And we started discussing the ideas and sort of got excited about the theories that he was developing. And as a part of our kind of interaction, we figured, hey, uh, how would I just kind of uh, pursue my master's over there and see how it goes. Uh, start doing this master's, uh, gradually moved to the PhD program because uh, once you kind of get into that, you start realizing that, hey, I need to put way much more uh, time into this to be able yeah. to go to the depth. Uh, and of course, I mean, that was, exciting period in the sense that it was nascent period of machine learning uh, from an adoption perspective. So those days we were still working on sort of cool math. Uh, the top conferences in machine learning that invite, I don't know, thousands of people now uh, used to be like 500 people, right? It would be like very intimate discussion. I, I would like some theoretical machine learning conferences. So these were like math oriented conferences and you would have maybe like 100, 150 people. It was very core set of people that would just understand what was going on and then you start looking at like this proliferation of machine learning in all aspects of the life for whatever uh like a combination of reasons uh we started getting more data uh whatever it, it might it started with like the medical field but then uh, we started getting like social media data big data and then there was like all this data that would be captured by all the sensing devices uh there were like more uh, improvements in communication technologies. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of a natural progression, essentially, rather than, you know, me making conscious choices. It was just like you happen to be in a field that is growing. It's making bigger impact. And you are at a stage where you see this field going all the way from very niche theoretical applications uh, to some very targeted applications, all the way to where we see today. In fact, uh, it's it's becoming something where it's part of almost everything that we interact with uh, consciously or, you know, subconsciously or unconsciously. So, it's, it's been an interesting journey. And thankfully, I was sort of also fortunate to be able to work with very smart people. Uh, and that, that was just pure pure chance uh, that you end up with the people that you get to learn so much from, both in terms of not just machine learning or AI, but broadly in terms of how uh, how kind of it correlates with sort of the social issues and everything else. So yeah, it's, it's been an interesting journey since then.
0: And how you find yourself after that in 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 corporate from the phd let's say to the corporate uh, and the transition between both of them it's a story right. i guess <laughs> <laughs> that,
1: that, that's always interesting right i mean from two perspectives i guess uh, and, and i don't really want to kind of side with one versus the other it's just uh, sort of relatively different in nature but overlapping so Academia, it was, uh, and again, I mean, even after PhD, I was sort of research fellow back at McGill. We were doing some interesting things around, uh, you know, medical imaging before that I used to work on machine learning in HIV context, for example, understanding that. So it was sort of more uh, of a journey where we were targeting open problems, very, very challenging problems. And it was sort of a broader community effort where you would start looking at the, uh, at the kind of depth of the problem, you start realizing how immense these challenges are and start making like piecemeal contributions to you know, move forward in that area. And that is something that I, I still really like because it gives you uh, sort of the independence to look at the methodologies uh, not really bound by like a particular uh, of frame of reference, for instance. right. So it's been like quite quite interesting that way. Then you start looking at the adoption aspect of it. And as, as you start, so I, I used to work for like the small startup back then and then essentially moved to uh, the corporate side of it. And you start looking at the execution uh, pieces. The realization that you start getting is there are a whole lot of practical constraints that come into play now, right? So if, just, just think of you know, how you would um, uh, get into sort of policymaking so let's say you are learning about social sciences you are learning about hey you know these are like the financial policies these are kind of like the you know i'm learning like the economic theory and everything as soon as you get to apply it to real world it changes or uh, your thought process starts evolving in a very different way because it's not that straightforward cut and dry application of something right it impacts so many things so many people in so many different ways yeah you get exactly the same experience with technology that, hey, I can't really go in and apply, let's say X algorithm because you are applying it in a regulated industry. And if you're applying that, I need to make sure that my, my models are traceable. I can audit these models, they can be certified. And that then mean that, hey, I may not be able to apply latest and greatest, but I need to apply tried and tested. I need to be able to know what these models are doing before I can actually put them in, on the field. So there are like all these experiences that makes you understand like the the constraints. On the flip side, uh, a big kind of push happens on the application side. So you get like you know uh, the the technology takes a little bit of backseat. Application really comes front. Uh, so since then, I think my challenge has been to try and kind of balance the two. I mean because the technology still excites me. Uh, the application excites me even more, given how this technology has been impacting our world very very quickly, very rapidly, and in so many ways and not not all necessarily sort of positive, I guess. <laughs>
0: yeah, this, uh, technology it has a lot of perspective and we need to see it from different perspective in order to help people adopt it and, and, and take the most benefit from it. Absolutely. So this, the, the next topic is much more. Um, uh, we want to learn more about your perspective as a mentor, but also uh, as a coach. So in AI exponential thinker, we believe that creativity and critical thinking are crucial skills for solving complex problems and offering the best experience for customers and users for the society. As a mentor, what are your advices and tips for young people to gain the best technology opportunity today?
1: That's a very good question, Logan. I think uh, lately how we have kind of pursued uh, building up our skills. To some extent, uh, because of how quickly or like how widely these uh, opportunities are available, we tend to kind of get gravitated by, uh, you know, any uh, particular set of skills that relevant at any given point of time. So I'll give you an example, right? For example, if you are doing AI right now, everything or like a big chunk of it is all around deep learning, right? I mean, you know, uh, if you're not doing deep learning, you're just not doing AI, so to speak, and that's essentially how the world is perceived. But again, you know, this is an epoch in the broader journey of how we have been kind of looking at these technologies. So, what I always suggest is, you know, make sure that your fundamentals are strong. Make sure you know you understand why something works. Uh, if I really just focus on a specific programming language, so think of you know your Y two K years. Remember those, those years, and you know, COBOL was a phase, and we, you know, you got to kind of learn. Something because hey, everybody is demanding Y2K, which is uh, like, you know, like engineers that can help them kind of work with all these Y2K challenges and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, that was sort of one thing that was very relevant for like a very few years. And then you start kind of uh, growing to the next set of technologies, next set of capabilities. Fundamentally, I think you still, if you have the fundamentals of programming, for instance, or if you have fundamentals of underlying math, you are much better off. I mean, it's much easier to pick the skills, but it's much, much more difficult to pick the fundamentals. So if you're sort of growing up in your career, that is my core advice. If I were to be able to go back, I think I would, you know, I would add like a a mathematics degree to my computer science degree that, hey, you know, those were some of the things you can, you would really enjoy doing. And uh, those were like the challenges I enjoyed solving at some point. So I think uh, it it really helps to understand build the fundamentals and ask what, before, how. So what I mean by that is, you know, take a step back and try to understand what is it that you are trying to do before picking up the tools, right? If I, you know, just picking up a hammer doesn't really mean, you know, what is it that you are actually going to use it for? So I think those, like, just going back to uh, understanding, like, very foundational aspects of whatever area you are in are, are, are sort of very crucial. Because that forms the basis. Then the rest is sort of upper graph. You can just pick it up. Um,
0: I, 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 I'm, I'm really impressed by what you, what you said because generally the people who are, I'm, I'm saying generally because the idea is not to stereotype people, right? Yeah. But data scientists who are, uh, who are more, uh, have two, exp, two years of, you know, just studying in data science, uh, I need those advices, I guess. And Because the, the people who are coming from research, uh, by phd no um, I mean the, they are more focusing on what you said so they try to understand the fundamental before how to yeah. je, be, 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 before the part of execution let's say it in, in 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 some some way okay yeah. but the data scientists that uh, they follow a little bit courses and those things uh, they are more able to execute without l- understanding why and, and, and without any stereotyping but because at least for the first two first years of their experience and then they go more deeply on understanding the fundament of the things and why and how and you know what and those questions that's why generally I said there's a big difference of the 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 perception of someone who did research compared to someone no matter where who uh, who did um more who is more performing as well in the technical aspect as
1: execution there's yeah.
0: a big difference.
1: There is, Lopa, and I think I think you're you're very right in the sense that uh, the actually t- let me take a step back. I think what's what's happening is two things, right? Uh, the technology has run very quickly over at least like past decade or something, right? And if something runs that quickly, it results in kind of the implications that we see today. One being, hey, you have exceptional demand. And our education system or our like broader society is not able to kind of meet that demand right now..
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, what that results in is sort of finding quick pathways to fulfilling that demand. Uh, which, is sort of, which is okay to some extent. if <laughs> we, as a ap- application folks, we know a specific piece that needs to be solved. Now what we are asking from folks is, hey, you come in and you solve like an end-to-end problem for me. And that is something that we are not training them for. So what what's happening is just as you said, right? Like data scientists, if you take like let's say a few courses here and there, you build like the basic skill set, but the fundamentals are still still something that you need to kind of work on, and that takes time, right? Uh, it takes time. Whether a label of PhD or not is sort of besides the point. Uh, every time we talk about PhD research, is because ideally that should really uh, build like that structural thought process in, in us, True. That,
2: exactly. okay,
1: let's just like, let's just build the context around it. Let's not just like do things just for the sake of them. Right. So I think that's, you're absolutely right. That context needs to be built and those questions need to be asked. And we have seen, uh, folks who are sort of very, very well adapt with like a set of tools, but then when it comes to context, that's where we start seeing the problem. So I'll just give you like a very quick example on, you know, what it means. So we train like machine learning models. You get like data, and the best thing is, hey, I got like n number of data points. Let's say I got like 2,000 data points. I build a model, and the idea is that based on this 2,000 data points, the model that I build should work really well in real world. But if you don't really know about like the evaluation side of it, how how do I really test these models, right? And I I encounter this so often that we are building a model, and you end up testing it on exactly the data that you built on. So what happens now is you know you are just biasing your model you don't really you just assume that your world is entirely represented in the data sets that you got so for example if i'm trying to understand like the health state of like 10 people i build a model learning from those 10 people but if the 11th person ends up being very very different from those 10 people my model is going to break down because all i did was understand those 10 people and test my models on those 10 people it worked, worked perfectly but it doesn't really, you know, give me like the the kind of resiliency that I need in my model. True. Sure. So those are like the context that I see missing on so many different levels. Not just like the people who are building models, but also sort of the organizations who are building systems, for example, right? And that's sort of part and parcel of how this technology has grown so fast that in some sense we are just trying to kind of uh, play catch up while also making uh, this technology as widely available as possible. So. I think this this uh, the, the search for equilibrium is going to kind of last for a little long before we can kind of settle in. But the importance is like very very uh, uh, very very uh, appreciated, or at least starting to get appreciated now that the context has to has to be there. Correct.
2: Okay. Um, we 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 have both advices from a mentorship uh, perspective. Now, if we flip it and take it from coaching. For me, and at least for I think for everyone, coaching is a different way to empower people. And we are curious to know uh, what's your perspective on coaching.
1: Right. So I, I think uh, depending on how we define sort of coaching versus mentoring, I think uh, one is kind of more focused on very specific defined goal. So I can, for example. Uh, you know, train someone to get, like, a skill set. And that would be, like, a very, very, you know, um, targeted uh, kind of application of how you would, you know, help someone train. The second aspect is, okay. how do you really uh, guide somebody or, like, at least help them? I think it's those are, like, personal journeys, but at least help them do the discovery process, right? And what I mean by that is when we talk about sort of purpose and sense in life, right, I mean, beyond uh, sort of looking at something from a career perspective, how do you really start building a purpose? And I think that is where uh, sort of more coaching, more mentoring are required, depending upon how we kind of use the term. But at the end of the day, I think I personally, I kind of see uh, I kind of see coach as somebody who would provide like that broader perspective to, uh, to people who can say, uh, let's look beyond my immediate goals, let's look beyond my, quantifiable matrix and identify success. Mm-hmm. So When we talk about success, for example, right? It's it's not like a, 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 a the same definition for everybody. Success would be something very different from me than somebody else, right? I mean, uh, one person can define success as, uh, I don't know, moving up the ladder in a very large organization. Or you might define success as, uh, you know, getting X million dollars and that can be success to you. Yeah. But what I've seen is, you know, that quantified matrix of success may or may not give you purpose may or may not give you sense of satisfaction. right. So that is something that it's, it's for you to define. What is it that really makes you satisfied in life? So I kind of always ask this question right. Every time we have the discussion with people, I always ask this question on what what in your head is a life w- well lived? right? So how do you really measure your life? And there is like sort of interesting takes on it, right? If you look at uh, uh, like some of like the recent writings, even from uh, uh, sort of uh, like uh, uh, some of the leading authors, and I think we are as a society moving uh, moving to this uh, to this whole uh, mindset that we need to be broadly examining uh, what our purpose, what our sense are, and that really. Uh, it's, it's an evolving process. I think you know, as we grow, as we get more context, we start realizing you know, what are the kind of things that uh, make us happy or make us content. And what I like to tell people is, especially if you're in like data science or something, it's an interesting exercise to do. Follow the data, right? Uh, what do you think that makes you happy? versus what, what does make you happy in real life? I mean, those may not be the same thing. So my perception of happiness may not be the same thing as my experience of happiness. And those are something, those are very different. So broadly, I think, you know, from from that perspective, I think the guidance is always around nudging, you know, somebody to be able to always look for that discovery process, not kind of, you know, get yourself busy in very point skills at any given time. I think it's it's more important that let's let's broaden our, our, our perspective and see how we want to kind of, uh, situate ourselves in the broader social, societal context.
2: Great, you talk about the definition of success and, and you're right, it's a very personal uh, question and for sure the answer should be very personal, but unfortunately today's, and especially I think for 100 years, not today, people don't define their own definition of success, they are just following another definition of success. And this is why they are losing the purpose of something that makes sense for them. And I think technology era is unfortunately go, pushing people to go more in this way. That's why we talk about exponential thinker because we are trying to say, okay, exponential technology is perfect. And we it's something that will bring a lot of opportunities solution for our lives. But in the same time, we need to take two step back, right? And think about other things with about society, the planet, uh, children you know the life in order to define success for everyone with authenticity and hopefully we succeed one day to ha- to bring this civilization differently
1: uh, so, uh, i think yeah you're you're totally right we,
2: we talk about uh, mentoring and coaching we talked a little bit about your journey but now let's come back to your current role yeah. so as a technology executive uh, how looks a typical day in your current role and what are the main challenges in in, in such unique position and missions for
1: uh, That's interesting. Actually, it's sort of difficult to define a regular day. What I would say is, you know, let's define what are kind of like the broader themes of uh, what we do. And, and the reason I say that is, you know, uh, there are days when we are doing something very, very incremental, very, very uh, kind of execution specific. There are other days that are much more satisfying where you start looking at kind of the broader context, broader problems, and what exactly are the impact of these, these yeah. capabilities. I think the, the biggest challenge that we see, especially in sort of, uh, and again, it's it's not like my current role or anything. This has been like a theme because we work with kind of uh, what we like to call engineering, have uh, your legacy industries, right? I yeah. mean, if you're yeah. looking in digital context, we are talking about companies that have, come from sort of a very different background like very engineering heavy very domain uh, kind of uh, heavy organizations so in a lot of sense i think one of the challenges to be able to introduce new technologies like ai and the biggest challenge that comes in the way is sort of bridging the gap bridging the gap between what business really needs versus what technology uh, actually can do and how do you really formulate let's say business problems in this technological context now so for example if i were to build uh if i were to build uh let's say a uh a, a, a robotic vacuum for example right okay. now if you're building a robotic vacuum from a business perspective you want to kind of you know build it so that it makes consumers life easier it, it just makes your life seamless the integration has to be seamless from a technological perspective it's a very very different challenge it's not like I can say, hey, I have just one problem. that Let's uh, let just train this robot. It just goes around everywhere in the house. But I have to start thinking of other things. Would it really cover everything? Would it be able to penetrate all the small spaces in my house? Would it be able to do it in a very short period of time? Yeah. Do I have to be mindful about how much energy it takes? Because that itself is like sure. sort of a problem. Right? So there are like all this kind of bridging that, uh, that needs to happen uh, on technology level. And then there are sort of this bridging that need to happen at much broader scaling level. So at some point for example when we were uh, looking at the aviation industry, where back when I was at uh, GE, we were looking at the aviation industry and we started looking at sort of our CSA business. We started looking at you know how do we uh, take this business and uh, view it from a perspective where data and AI can help. So this is like you know you are giving like warranties on your aircraft engines and that would run for 15, 20 years. You need to be able to show that you make money out of it. You make profit out of it, but more importantly, your your fleets are always in the sky, right? You want to make sure that you know these are reliable. The operations don't really falter. So there is a whole lot that goes behind sort of your uh, flying experience that all these industries are kind of putting together. And when you look at that, uh, it's not immediately uh, clear on how you start solving that problem. If somebody says, "Hey, you know, just apply data to it," I you know, I need to understand, okay, what problems are solvable? What are not? So that bridging of the gap is sort of uh, a core part. And then there is the other theme that is a running theme around just pushing the state of the art on the technology. Because every time we do the business exercise, we learn that there are unaddressed things that we need to kind of solve now. Sure. In an interesting way, the journey has changed. So in my initial year, it was more around explaining sort of our leadership on what is feasible. So it was sort of, you know, you built like a proof, uh, like a, a proof point, and then you say, okay, you know what? Look at this. This is what machine learning or AI or data science can do. I think it's been reversed now. I think our biggest challenge right now is to be able to tell what cannot be done. Because the adoption has been like so vast yeah. that in everybody's mind, AI is already there. It can just do a whole lot of things. And we have to kind of pull back a little to say, hey, these are the limits of the technology. Let's try to understand these can be done very, very faithfully versus these are the things that we better be very careful before we just put it out in the market, I think. So it's it's an interesting journey, actually. Uh, and those are sort of like the running themes that we we run across on sort of a monolith daily basis.
2: So every single, let's say, project or product, you have to go through many, many challenges, but yeah. they are part of the story, right? they part of the process and you have to deal with all of them, right? But my yes. question is, when you are like you give an example, concrete example that help uh, people to understand at least from some perspective. But in this example, uh, generally it's not easy as well to deal with the different uh, you know uh, people who are leading those uh, branches or those aspects or whatever. Why? Because everyone would defend his you know targets. Yep. So when yep. you are in AI and especially in technology, let's say it like this you need to cover all the perspectives and find the consensus, right?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So I I think, so this is interesting, right? I mean, if you look at AI, for example, just as a technology, by definition, it's an interdisciplinary technology to begin with, very interestingly, right? So math is sort of a pure science. When we look at sort of uh, uh, anything sort of in the biology area, they tend to be relatively pure sciences. Uh, When we look at kind of uh, AI or machine learning to be sort of more Precise in terms of where we are currently. Uh, by definition, it's a mix of at least a few things. There are like a fundamental things that come from mathematics in terms of modeling. There are fundamental things that come from uh, sort of computer science. There are fundamental things now that are coming in from engineering, for example, right? So by definition, there is there is that. Now you take this, and when you are like putting it in like a business context, you are dealing with a whole lot of stakeholders who yeah. are critical to getting this product out right So uh, going with like my, my aviation example in the in the past right yeah we would talk to a whole lot of uh, uh, our colleagues in uh, you know that, that would essentially monitor what's happening with like the flights on the plane. These are like engineers who have very deep experience and expertise in the physical modeling of these devices so they understand like the underlying physics something goes wrong they know what exactly to look for and as an ai or machine learning person i am kind of basically telling them that hey let me just abstract it all out and without really kind of you know looking at a specific set of uh, values explicitly i can tell you this is going to be a problem or this is something that are the flights that are that are going to uh, have an issue for example can i really predict it how do i go and build that confidence because you know they have to have very valid corroboration or you know substantiation of why I am making that argument, and you start realizing that okay, it's it's not just like a, a point game where I say hey, I look at like my past data, I know that I can look at ninety-seven percent of accuracy on this thing, but I can't really tell you why. Uh, but I can tell you that you know with high confidence these these are like good estimates. That doesn't necessarily float in that context, right? Then there are a whole lot of other folks who are who are apprehensive because. Uh, the the case has not as clear from sort of proving out the technology so we have we have done quite a bit of work in building the technology showing sort of the promise and everything else but when it comes to spaces where they have certain ways of working where these people uh, have already operated in certain ways you are challenging those ways and then you know uh, to some extent that onus goes on you to be able to say that okay you know this is why this replacement is better so it's like if I had been using sort of, I had been kind of doing manual calculations all along, right? And somebody introduces a calculator to me. Why would I believe them? I mean, it does give me all the right answers, but like, how do I really believe it, right? So it, it's a function of both proving, and it takes time, I think. So adoption, by definition, is like a slow process, especially if you are impacting areas that have been around for a long, long time. If you are a native digital company, it's a very different thing. If your business model is all around this new technology. Then you know that, okay, you know, this is what our culture is. This is what, uh, you know, is really pushing it. And as the technology changes, I think even these organizations in, say, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, would be resistant to something new that might be coming. So it's it's a process, right? It's uh, it's how we kind of learn, adopt, and essentially understand, like, the broader implications of these.
2: And I think it's not people, unfortunately, they understand the technology as, as only technology, but... As you mentioned this example about calculation, it's same. Why you you will believe on it or at least accept it? So it's yeah. same. It, it, it's same between this example or a robot or a machine learning model that you will adopt it in one system, right? It's yeah. same. Uh, probably it's more about the mindset than other things. And and this and till now we didn't have the form the magic formula to to upgrade the mindset in. in uh, in some perspective, let's say. Um,
1: Absolutely, I think, you know, uh, it's it's also sort of, uh, just as you said, mindset, it's, it's sort of building this whole um, uh, sort of data culture in the industries, right? We yeah. are able to understand as well as appreciate that. And I think it's both kind of a, a challenge and responsibility uh, to do it right, I think.
2: And one of our guests, she said, that, I remember her, she said that data culture, the data culture, as you said, and you are right, Uh, and especially the topic of data is not a a fancy topic in company. So we need to go through this process for for a couple of times and years in order to uh, settle it well, let's say it like this, in order to accelerate the digital transformation. We will come back to this topic later as well. So now let's move to, we talk about AI, now let's move to the AI ethics. Um, And we call it in AI exponential thinker trust technology. Um, for us, uh, technology, transparency, and trust should be uh, together, and should be something very important that we care about. it uh, when we implement AI, as we work on building AI products and services for millions of users, from your perspective, how can we build transparent and trust AI technology?
1: Okay, so I, yeah, so basically, all I was saying is, you know, the the uh, these technologies. One of the fundamental characteristics of these technologies is that. They have a capacity to amplify and accelerate their impacts very, very quickly, because they operate in sort of a network setting at, at the end of the day. And if we look at like the you know like the, the network theory, as the network grows, it's the ability of its impact or like the capacity of its impact grows exponentially. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's like one of the things that we are seeing, uh, you know, how AI technologies are kind of uh, you know being adopted, and it's sort of a very, very fast cycle. So one thing that I and this this again like you know you reference that book uh, that I wrote uh, we started kind of writing that book maybe I don't know ten plus years ago yeah and during that time these were kind of initial days of you know more serious application or like adoption of machine learning in in capacities and we would say hey you know we see sort of a a discrepancy or like a gap between adoption or like you know. using these technologies for whatever task you are trying to do and trying to understand whether it's being done right right so evaluation essentially started becoming a, a big issue uh, so for example we were seeing like certain works in in uh, bioinformatics for example right and we were studying like genes uh, and like the impacts of the genes on let's say specific pathologies and whatnot and you would see these studies that would come out where they would do statistical testing with like one or two data points and we would go back and it's like No, I mean, this this just cannot be right because you just don't have enough basis to make the conclusions that we are making. Mm -hmm. Or we would also go back and see, okay, what are like the mathematical basis of even applying certain statistical tests to these scenarios, right? So that's when it started and then it all exponentiated. So now I think where we are, and I I speak about it a, a lot in kind of my talks as well, is there is a need for transparency and trust in terms of not just how we build AI models, so we have been talking a lot about, for instance, uh, biases that are introduced by data. Europe, for example, has been kind of uh, at the forefront looking at GDPR, for example, yes. right? We, in California, is kind of starting to look into that and we have like some uh, regulations being import, uh, kind of uh, uh, adopted as well. But data is a small piece of it, right? I mean, we, sure. uh, yeah, at the end of the day, I think there is much more need- that need to be done and that may or may not be just an artifact of, AI or the models itself, Uh, we have to start looking at it from, at the very, very initial step, we have to start looking at it from a system level, right? So for example, if I build an AI algorithm, I can get like a certain performance of my model, but if I have multiple models acting together, how do I really kind of, you know, uh, 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 essentially extrapolate how these models would perform? We typically kind of still are working in silo level. We are like at the system level, we don't really have that that mechanism in place. From there on, if I were to kind of look at, for instance, validation and verification. Remember, like uh, sort of on the, on the hardware side, we always do V and V, valid- validation and verification. The way I kind of interpret that in, in machine learning context broadly is not just like we need to understand at the model level. Are we building first, are we building the right model? So for example, if I want to solve x problem, is it solving the x problem? But then there is the verification part. Is it doing something that I don't want it to do, and that is something that is relatively uh, less appreciated, at least on sort of the AI and machine learning industry right now. We see similar things that happen on validation and verification in core hardware. So if you're building like a car or an aviation aircraft or something, yeah. you know, you do it because you know that hey, you know, it, the, these mistakes are going to be very very costly.
2: It's about uh, life.
1: Exactly, it's about life and death, right? So uh, the the way when we treat these technologies in sort of safety or mission-critical systems. I think AI, machine learning, broad data-driven technologies, as they are applied today, they have those implications. They have those, the potential for those kind of impacts. And we have a responsibility to be able to test it that way, that way. The final thing I also like to say then in that context is think about adoption. Think about integration to existing setups. Right. We integrate these technologies to an existing ecosystem. We are just not building an ecosystem from the scratch. Right? So an example would be, let's say, you are curating news. And now I start introducing a recommendation system in the news. Uh, it's an existing ecosystem. Yes. What I am trying to do now is basically telling you that, OK, I'll provide you more and more news that you like to see. It's a sort of a good thing because, hey, I'm getting relevant content pushed out. But then on the flip side, <clears throat> there is a whole lot of things that you are going to miss out. So I, if I just get like a curated content from a biased recommendation engine, I might just start living in a bubble because you know I keep getting reinforced in terms of what I like to see and what I believe, rather than looking at like a broader panoply of of things that I should be aware of. Right? Mm-hmm. Those are like the integration issues that we need to we need to start uh, thinking about as well. And finally, these systems are kind of decision-making systems in some sense. So at the end of the day, we are delegating some decision-making as we adopt the system. Yeah. And let's go back to our calculator example right i mean the the calculator example adoption was like one thing but now that calculator is part of our, our daily lives how many times do we really question if my calculator is spit, spitting out a right answer i almost never do that and that's like the basic nature of automation right i mean once you kind of automate a decision making we kind of take it at face value right so we always assume that okay you know uh, so if you look at like the uh you know, the the culture up until sort of, uh, you know, early 2000s, typically the standard answer you would get is my computer tells me this. So in some sense, we have already kind of accepted that whatever my computer is telling me is right in whatever context we are talking about. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, I think that's important before we delegate the decision-making, it's important that we are doing it right. We are doing what the system is intended to do. And more importantly, it's not doing what it's not intended to do. So I think those are the things that are becoming more and more important, and that's where the sort of transparency and trust are, are going to play a bigger role.
0: But it's really a quite challenging, uh, um, let's say, a process, because in what in your answer, Mohak, you you put, like you talk about some aspects, right? But but at the end, as you know, it's more than this, and and there's processes, there's businesses, there's a lot of stuff. So we need to care about in all the details, which is a complex a complex process uh, to define course. it. And to be sure, at, yeah. at, to define it, at least we can do it, but to be sure that we are OK with all the details. You understand?
2: Absolutely. Because at the
0: end, it's not about technology, from my perspective. It's about the people who will work with it, either yeah. to develop, to maintain, to validate, to, de- to, to define the process, to respect the process, whatever. Uh, and and to and to use this technology as well all those people need to have some training about ai and technology ethics i yes, think if, if we want to be sure we need that like, all those people have some training every single like every couple months to be sure that they are respected and they are also aware to to yeah. say that if there is something uh, that is not unfortunately, respected, at least it's not, um, I mean, it's not uh, defined before and we need to care about it in order to be aware about this impact, uh, and if, if there is any impact, for sure.
1: A- absolutely, I think you're, you're, you're uh, on, uh, yeah, on something very interesting, Lovna. I think beyond what I described, right, at the end of the day, we, let, let's talk about it at both like technology and so, societal level, right? I mean, at yeah. the societal yeah. level, I think we, need much more. We need sort of much broader participation from a whole lot of stakeholders. It's not just a question of technology, but it's a question of appropriate applications, uh, a common consensus on what. Uh, how do we really validate or evaluate something. So for example, if you are giving training, if I were to give training, then we have to have a common agreement on, what the rules of engagement are what does like an ethical ai really means then in that context right so i think all of those uh, all the way from adopting technology all the way to kind of policy making will have to be part of the discussion whether we like it or not the second aspect of that is we have to kind of uh, uh, start thinking in terms of how much of this technology itself is doing stuff versus how it's applied so what i mean by that is even where we are in terms of the developments that we have made in ai machine learning these are not like self thinking capabilities right so i mean uh, if you look at kind of original definitions of ai it, it's always been about the machines that can actually think in the sense that they can do reasoning for example right and they can respond to uh, environments they can essentially seamlessly become part of the environment and act like an as, an, as a hopefully rational agent, mm-hmm. but that's sort of like the the broader goal. Where we are in our journey of AI is we have taken a specific approach to solving certain subset of the problem, which are like machine learning uh, or data data heavy kind of ways of looking at it. But that's a separate discussion. The point I was trying to make is everything that we are doing right now basically means that this technology is still in some sense neutral in the sense that technology by itself is not doing any positive or negative harm it's, so it's all about application right so let me give you an example i can understand let's say i am a health insurance provider i can understand what the health state is for you know i don't know 2 million people now how do i use that information is still up to me right i can basically sure. look at all that and i can say okay let me let me use this information so that i can price my offerings in a way that it it minimizes the risks and it basically is accessible to more and more people so I can cover more and more people now I can take on the flip side I can take exactly the same thing and I can say that okay out of this 2 million people I know that this 100,000 people are going to be extremely costly let me just push them out of you know cover it. I just don't provide them and my profitability goes up right yeah. so those questions are I mean they are still in some sense not a domain of technology or like a byproduct of technology itself right the technology gives you visibility how we employ that is still still up to us. And that is something that is evolving in both our understanding as well as application. Because to be fair, it's, it's not like somebody is applying it with bad intentions. It's, it's just that the advancements are so fast that our understanding, like our societal understanding of what the implications are, sure. have been lagging behind. Right? And that's, that's where our, our core challenges are.
0: With more than 50,000 young people empowered in time of pandemic and uncertainty, we are grateful to our remarkable guests with exponential experiences and from great organizations such as Amazon, World Economic Forum, Harvard, Google, Berkeley, and more. Thank you to our great audience and keep tuned for this new episode in the Unique AI Channel of Trust by AI Exponential Thinker.